church, would you remain standing in reverence as we read Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of its stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in it in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. O oh, now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they know they do not rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are as pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So if things were going badly for the religious leaders, they're about to get a whole lot worse. It was Passover week, one of three times each year when all the men of Israel were commanded to come to Jerusalem and present themselves before the Lord. For the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, this was prime time. This was their opportunity to build their brand. This was their opportunity to expand their influence. But instead of mesmerizing the people with their knowledge of the law, they found themselves trying to manage this man called Jesus of Nazareth. It had already been a crazy week in the crowds. They only continued to grow. And so an official delegation of the Jewish Supreme Court, these representatives of the Sanhedrin, they approached Jesus and they demanded to know, by what authority do you do these things? See, these men, they had held themselves up as the leaders of the nation of Israel. And yet Jesus never once bothered to check in with them. He didn't reference any of the rabbis in his teaching, and he certainly hadn't sought their permission before cleaning out the temple. There was a certain way you do things in Jerusalem, and this was not it. And so these men, they approached Jesus as he stood there in the temple court preaching the gospel, interrupting him to extend this challenge, seeking to trip him up. And yet what they would find was that instead of an answer to their question, they received a question of their own. I will ask you a question. You answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, is it from heaven or is it from man? You see, John the Baptist, he'd been set apart from within his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit, sent forward in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the hearts of men, to prepare the way for the Lord, giving testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ. And so for these men to admit that John and his ministry had come from heaven, that would be to confess Jesus as Christ. To admit that John's baptism came from heaven would be to confess that Jesus in his person as the Son of God had all authority. They couldn't do that. But at the same time, John had a tremendous following. People understood that John had in fact been a prophet come from God. And so these men weren't going to speak ill of John. That would bring with it the penalty of stoning. And so these men, they gave the only answer they thought they could give. They surveyed the landscape. They found the most expedient answer to be a simple, we don't know. 
So Jesus wouldn't answer them. And frankly, he doesn't need to. The silence of the Sanhedrin, it spoke volumes. Very clearly they knew who this John was. Clearly they knew that the testimony he gave regarding Jesus was true. And yet, this confrontation would not be over. For the remainder of this Tuesday of Holy Week, we're going to find four more direct interactions, much like this one, with each one going just as badly as the last. With Mark ending by saying that after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. So we return to Mark's gospel. I invite you to stand to your feet, please. We're going to turn to the 12th chapter. In your pew Bibles there, it's page 796 if you need help finding it. 12th chapter of Mark's gospel. This is the word of God. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, There is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you give us eyes to see that which would otherwise be hidden? Would you give us ears to hear that which would otherwise be silent? Would you give us hearts to believe that which would otherwise confound us? Father, do what only you can do. We beg. In your son's precious name. Amen. Verse 1 began like this. And he began to speak to them in parables. So Mark records for us just one parable here. What you find in Matthew's gospel is that this is actually the middle of three parables. It shouldn't confuse us that Mark focuses on just the one. Mark wasn't as busy presenting to us the teaching, the instruction of Jesus, as Luke and Matthew. Remember, Mark is the fast-paced gospel. He's all about the narrative. Immediately is the word that runs all throughout. And yet this one particular parable, this is the one that God would speak to us. He would give us through Mark so that we could see more clearly what was happening on that day. You'll find that this is the first major parable presented by Mark since chapter 4 where we read the parable of the mustard seed. Now, despite the fact that we haven't spent a lot of time in the parables, you know what they are. You know that parables are short, succinct stories. What happens here is Jesus presents to the people that were in immediate earshot of the hearing. He speaks to them a teaching that would have made immediate sense to them. They would have understood the situation, the picture that he was painting. And yet the immediate context, that's not the point. It points to something deeper, something higher, something more spiritual than just the immediate story that he tells. This is a favorite teaching tool of Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous tool. It's a way in which he can take men and open their eyes to things that would otherwise be completely hidden. So we read here that he's teaching them in parables. Now back in Mark's gospel, in the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel, in that string of parables, you'll remember that 
his disciples, they came to him. They said, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables like this? Jesus responds, to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those on the outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be, be forgiven. So the purpose to the parables was to conceal to those that were on the inside, to those that have been called by Christ, those that have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, they would hear these parables and they would have greater insight into the kingdom of God. Even beyond that, they would be called to the side and spoken in very straightforward terms by Jesus himself, helping them to see, again, more clearly the kingdom of God. But to those that were on the outside, to the outsiders, those that did not sit at the feet of Jesus and do what he had commanded, to them, this would only serve to further confound them, to confuse them. This was an act of hardening. And yet with this morning's parable, we don't find it playing out exactly like this. This morning's parable, it seems to be one with a very distinct purpose of revealing rather than concealing. We see this evidenced by the fact that in verse 12, we read that the religious leaders, they perceived that Jesus was speaking against them. Jesus was enlightening everyone that was standing within the earshot. Everyone that was there in the temple court in Jerusalem this Passover week, they would have heard what Jesus said and immediately they would have understood what he was talking about. Now, now, we do need to make one more observation. Again, Jesus says, or, or Mark tells us what Jesus is speaking in here is parables. This isn't an allegory. Now, we're not going to break down the whole, all of the differences between parables and allegories, but here's the important thing to understand. With a parable, what Jesus is doing is he is painting to you one broad picture to make a distinct spiritual point. We don't have to take every single issue within a parable and try to make a one-for-one correlation with something else. We're not always seeking for some kind of hidden meaning in every last animal, the lion, the king, the prince, the hedge, the vineyard, with every single part of this story. What Jesus is doing is he's rounding out a beautiful story for us so that he can present to us a truth that would otherwise be hidden. And so with this parable, just as with the others, Jesus chooses to use agricultural pictures, like fishermen dragging a net, a man sowing seeds, tares among the wheat. He speaks to them in agricultural terms. But I have to imagine that if God in his providence had chosen to send his son today, he would have spoken in very different terms. His parables would have come in the form of the oil field or online shopping or coronavirus or something like that. That he speaks to us in terms that immediately make sense to us so that we can see this deeper, otherwise hidden spiritual picture. And so for us, as we stand here some 2,000 years and we look backwards, we have to do double the work. Because this story that Jesus tells, it doesn't immediately make sense to us in our context. So we must first make sure we understand what is the original picture, just at face value, what is the picture that Jesus is painting, and only then can we proceed to try and make some spiritual sense, grasp onto that deeper truth that he's laying out for us. So let us work on that together. It begins like this. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Now, we're following this. I don't know that we have to be wine growers or grape growers in order to grasp this. A man plants a vineyard. There's a field full of grapes. Now, grape farming is expensive business. People in the know tell me that this is much tougher than growing other crops, not the least of which because it can often take between four and five years before you can get a proper grape harvest. This is very different from growing wheat or other grains where you can expect to have produce every single year. And so this man, he plants a vineyard. Again, this isn't just scattering seed. It would take great care to prepare the field. He would have had to take each vine and make sure that it had the proper amount of space around it. He really is setting this vineyard up to make sure that it has every possible opportunity to flourish. He gets this all set up. He builds a fence around it or a hedge of some sort. You don't do this with all other crops. And yet with grapes, because they are so delicate, 
because they are so enticing, you would set up a wall around it to make sure that intruders, whether human or animal, that they wouldn't come in and eat up your grape crop. In addition to that, he, he builds a pit or a vat to collect the wine. Again, this man wasn't just growing grapes for the sake of eating them. He was going to institute a wine press here. And so this vat would have collected the juice until they were ready to begin the fermentation process. In addition to that, overseeing the entire enterprise, the man builds a tower. This would have been a place where a guard could sit and he could be on the lookout for any trouble coming his direction. Anybody that would come and wish ill upon his vineyard. In addition to that, this would have been a place where they could have stored tools to work the vineyard. And it would have served as a bunkhouse for anybody that was working there in this field. This is quite an investment. This man has taken great care. He's gone to great lengths, not just in terms of finances, but in terms of just physical effort to set this vineyard up to absolutely flourish. So Mark tells us that after the man's finished, he's extended all the capital, all the sweat labor, in addition to all the, all the money to put this in place. Verse 1 continues, he leased it out to tenants and went into another country. So apparently this man was not from this place. He was from somewhere else, and yet he had come and bought this field. He'd gone through all this effort, and now he's headed back to his home country, leaving somebody else to manage it for him. He leases it out to tenants. This is quite common in first century Palestine. Israel is a great place to grow grapes. You remember when Moses sent in the spies in the book of Numbers. He sent the spies in, and they came back with just one cluster of grapes. Do you remember how ginormous it was? It took two men carrying it between a pole like a giant hog to bring back this cluster of grapes. And so this was a fertile land. It's a great place to grow grapes or figs or pomegranates or olives. And so it wasn't uncommon for men that lived somewhere else to come into Israel, buy a plot of land, put in the effort to get it farming, and then go back to their homeland. But they had to have somebody to work the field for them, so they would lease it out to tenant farmers. That's the story that's being painted for us here. Verse 2, when the season came, he, now that's the owner of the vineyard, right? When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now remember, this is a business transaction. This man wasn't doing this as an act of charity. He didn't just want to give to these tenants some farm. He extended the capital and put in all the effort because he expected a return on his investment. And so he sends a servant to collect that. Now, in Luke's gospel, it says that the man had been gone for some time. Again, it can take four or five years to get a proper harvest. And so it may have been as much as four or five years before these men had seen or heard anything from the man that had given them this vineyard to work. And so he sends his servant. It's the time has come. It's the season. It's time for the harvest. So the owner, he sends one of his servants. He doesn't come himself. He shouldn't have to. These men knew the arrangement. They knew not only that this vineyard didn't belong to them, but they knew exactly what they were expected to give in exchange for the right to work and earn a living off of this vineyard. In this instance, we're told that it wasn't money that the agreed-upon payment was some of the fruit, some of the produce. Now, common rent in that day may have been anywhere from a quarter to a half of, of the yield from the field. But whatever the case was, everybody knew what the deal was up front. They had an agreement. This is when my servant shall come, and this is what you will give me in return. So the servant, he arrives in the vineyard, verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Apparently, they weren't going to honor the arrangement. Now, this is not a very good way to renegotiate your deal, but whether they decided that the payment was too high, whether they thought that perhaps the owner of the vineyard was never going to show up and they could just mistreat his servant in this way, whatever the case, they beat the man and they sent him back to his owner with nothing. Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. So the owner of the vineyard, he sends a second servant. Perhaps he's thought, well, maybe these guys have come to their senses. 
or maybe this servant will have more success. He'll be able to express this truth to them in another way, and maybe then they will respect me as the owner of the vineyard, and they will pay me what is due. But either way, the response is the same. In fact, maybe a bit worse. It says that they struck him on the head, and they treated the man shamefully. This servant, just like the last, he was mistreated, and he was sent away empty-handed. Verse 5, and he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. So things are obviously escalating. They've now killed this servant. He sends one, and they beat him. They send one, and they strike him on the head. They send one, and he kills him. No matter how many servants this man sends, the outcome is always the same. They are not walking away with any of the produce. They're not walking away with any of the fruit. You must see this. This is an assault on the landowner himself. These servants that come in his name, knowing exactly what the arrangement is, they beat him, hit them on the head, mistreat them, and kill them. This is an assault on the man who has sent them. And you must see the great patience on the man who has planted this vineyard. You must see the great patience that he has extended in this moment because a man like this, a man that has the resources to invest in a vineyard like this in a foreign land, a man that has this many servants to send to collect what is his, it would have been nothing for this man to rally a group of fighting men to go back into this place and to completely annihilate these men, to completely wipe them off the face of the earth. Not just for refusing to give him what is owed, but for mistreating, for doing such violence to his servants. And so as the people are standing around Jesus and they're hearing this story, surely that's where their mind is going. I have to imagine, you know, kids don't do a very good job of holding back what they think. I have to imagine there's some kid in the crowd that yells out at Jesus, that's not very realistic, Jesus. This man wouldn't just keep sending his servants to get beat and killed. Surely you would have rallied together some troops and gone and killed these men, wouldn't you? They've established a pattern. They've shown they don't respect you. They've shown they don't honor the deal. So are you going to continue to just send these men like sheep to slaughter? But Jesus continues, verse 6. He had still one, another, one other, a beloved son. Surely not. He knows what's going to happen. He's seen what's happened to the servants. Surely he's not now going to send his son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. The son is different than a servant. The son, the one that comes on behalf of his father, he's coming to a vineyard that is his inheritance. He comes with the full and absolute authority of his father. So the father says in sending the son, surely they will respect my son as if I myself had come to them. Verse seven, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. These men knew exactly what was up. This was not an act of ignorance. This was not a horrible misunderstanding. These men knew exactly what was happening, but they were driven by hatred and arrogance and pride and violence, all wrapped into one. Now, we don't know. Perhaps did they believe that the father had died and that's why the son had come? Did they believe perhaps that the father was just an absolute pacifist? They believed that the father just didn't have it in him to come and demand justice despite their rejection, despite their violence. Whatever the case they see the son coming, they determine we're going to kill this man. Again, they know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what this represents. If the tenants could have got to the father, they would have killed him too. But he was in a faraway country. And yet now here comes his son, and we can put our hands on his son. We're not going to beat him. We're going to kill him. We're going to throw him from the vineyard. And then surely the field will be ours. I mean, possession is nine-tenths of the law, right? So after time, if we've killed the son and no one else comes, eventually, as squatters, we will just own this thing. So verse 8, and they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They did it exactly as they planned, 
exactly as their hearts desired, they took the man's son. Again, not just a hired hand. This is the man's son. We read that he is his beloved son, his precious son, his dear son. They take the man's son, they kill him, and they throw him out of the vineyard. An absolute abomination. So let's hit pause for a moment. I don't think that you have to be a grape farmer or a farmer of any sort to grasp this picture. I don't think you have to have any experience with this kind of violence to grasp this picture. So I think from this point, we can begin now to try and fill in the picture and understand what is Jesus pointing us towards, understanding the deeper spiritual truth. So who is the man? Who is this man that's initiated this whole thing? Who is the man with the resources to purchase the field, that took it upon himself to do all the work that needed to happen to set this field up for growth? The man to whom everything is owed that comes out of this field. Clearly, this man is God. This man represents God. He is the one that's done everything and then entrusted this field to others. What about the field? What about the vineyard? Does the vineyard represent something, or am I just stretching here? I don't think so. You know, we spent a lot of time in recent weeks talking about a particular fig tree. You remember that fig tree that's along the way between Jerusalem, or between um, Bethany and Jerusalem, that fig tree that represented Israel. It wasn't uncommon for God throughout the Old Testament to refer to his people like a plant. Could he do the same with a vineyard? Yes, he does, all throughout the Old Testament. We read in Psalm 80, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 19, Hosea 10. A vineyard, in fact, a grapevine, it became like the national symbol for Israel. And so they would have immediately understood what this vineyard represented, that the vineyard represented Israel, the one in which God, the one that God had planted in this place. But we see the most direct correlation to this morning's text in what David read this morning out of Isaiah 5. He seems to almost be talking word for word, Almost a direct correlation to this. You remember what he read, I do hope. If not, you can turn to your Bibles there. It's Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. You remember what he's talked about there is this vineyard of the Lord. He speaks to the house of Israel, the children of Judah, those that he has planted like a vineyard on a fertile hill. This is a common thing. You would, you, would, you would carve out in the hill these plateaus. You would scrape away all the rocks, and then you would set up there a vineyard of your own. You could see it, a beautiful sight as you drive through Israel. And then around this vineyard, he set up a wall. Then within this vineyard, he dug a vat. And then above this vineyard, he set up a tower. Sounds almost word for word what we're studying this morning, isn't it? And yet in the Isaiah text, what we find is that the master of the field comes himself. He comes to inspect the fruit. And yet what he finds there is sour grapes, wild grapes, fruit that is not suited for its purpose. The very reason that the master, the Lord of this vineyard, has planted it, it's not meeting up to its purpose. It's yielded bad fruit. So God exclaims, judge for yourself then. Is there anything that I haven't done that needs to be done to set this vineyard up for success? Is there anything that it needs that I haven't provided? The obvious answer is no. You've done more than enough. And so what does he say? He pronounces a curse. I'm going to mow you down then. I'm going to take down the gate. I'm going to fill in the vats. I'm going to take down the tower. I'm going to allow others to come, and it's going to be turned into a briar. Nothing is going to grow from you ever again. Sound familiar? Awful lot like the fig tree, doesn't it? What we read here is a curse pronounced over Israel, over the vineyard, because of her inability to produce fruit. And yet, what we find in Jesus' parable is that God's anger is not directed at the vineyard itself, the whole of the nation of Israel. It's directed at the tenants. Who are the tenants? Who are these men that have been entrusted with care over God's vineyard, this vineyard that God has planted? This vineyard that God has put every possible resource into their hands. These men that God has graciously allowed to eat the fruit and to enrich themselves off of this field that he owns. Who are these tenants? Who are these men that reject 
the one that God sends in his name to collect what is owed. Surely it's the religious leaders, right? The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, these very men that are now confronting Jesus. These men that have used God's law, God's temple, God's nation is nothing but a place to enrich themselves, a place to build a name for themselves, keeping for themselves the fruit that was owed to God, the worship, the honor, the glory, the respect, keeping back for themselves that which was only supposed to go to God. We see this fact evidenced by the fact that in verse 12, again, we read that these religious leaders recognized that Jesus was preaching against them. They were the heels. They were the bad guys in this real life story, and they knew it. You see this. We're reminded that each man is going to give an account to God. Every last one of us will give account to God for the fruit that we have not produced. Every one of us, not a one of us will be able to stand before God and say, well, God, you didn't give me what I needed. And yet there's going to be a greater condemnation upon those that lead, those that teach, those that hold themselves up, that point others towards God and yet at the same time are trying to hold back for themselves that which is due him. These men, they're each going to stand before God and they're going to answer to God for the way in which they have, they have led forth with his people. We see in this that there's a very direct correlation between the faithfulness of the tenants, of the vineyard workers, of the shepherds, of the overseers, of the teachers, of the preachers, and the fruitfulness of the people entrusted to them. We find this playing out in churches all throughout this country. As men stumble in all manner of ways, as men seek to build up kingdoms for themselves, and the people that are entrusted to their care, they almost just seem to be withering on the vine. Now they're each going to answer to God for what they have done with that which he has given them. But the man that works the field, he's going to answer to God in a special way. So what about the servants? Who are these men that, got, that, that the landowner, that God in this story, continues to send, demanding that which is due? Well, surely this is the prophets. You were ahead of me there, weren't you? Surely it's the prophets. These men that continue to be beaten, mistreated, killed, shamed. We read, through this, we read about this in Matthew uh, 23. Jesus is still kind of locked up in conversations with these religious leaders there, and he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now, in this particular woe, what Jesus is going to go on to talk about is the fact that these men, they have, they have claimed that if they had been alive in days of old, if they had been the ones in charge of Israel in the day when God sent his prophets, that they surely would not have mistreated them. They are so much better than those old men that they would have received them well, that they would have recognized the word of God coming from the mouths of these prophets. And so to prove this, they built statues and monuments and, and, and just spoke praises over these prophets of old. And yet what Jesus says to them is this. Number one, you acknowledge the evil and the mistreatment of these prophets by your fathers. How much greater the evil for you mistreating his very own son? He says in verse 31 of Matthew 23, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpent, you brutal vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. The rejection of God's prophets by his people has never been a question. The question was whether this particular generation was going to receive them any better. Spoiler alert, they didn't. They mistreated them just the same. And so we're beginning to see then the picture that Jesus is painting in this parable, aren't we? God has come and he has planted a vineyard. He has taken Israel and he has placed her in a good and fruitful land. He's given her every possible thing she could need to flourish, to produce much fruit. And yet she doesn't produce as much fruit as she should. And in many instances, there's this picture of him coming and finding no fruit, nothing but sour fruit. Because the managers, those that is entrusted with care over this place, they're stewards. They don't hold title to the place. 
They don't have the deed. They don't have a right to determine what comes out of this field. They work for another, and yet they have been faithless in their work. They have sought to build a kingdom for themselves, to enrich themselves off of this work that God has called them to. And so he sends servants. He sends these prophets that come and warn them time and time and time again. You must give to God what is due. You must carry your work out with great faithfulness. He will not be patient with you forever. And yet, no matter how many he sends, think about Zechariah. Think about Jeremiah being thrown into a pit. Think about Isaiah being sawn in half. Think about John the Baptist being beheaded not long before this. No matter how many prophets were sent, no matter what tactics they tried, the response was always the same. They were rejected. And yet God was so very patient. Time after time, he continued to send his prophets, his messengers. It would have been nothing for God to assemble his holy angels and send them down, raining fire upon these that had so disrespected him as the owner of everything. And yet he didn't. Perhaps these men believed that that day would never really come. Perhaps they believed that God's arms were just too short and he would never act. Perhaps they believed that God's love drove him to the point where he wouldn't ever bring judgment upon these people. And so they continued to act in exactly the same way, rejecting his messengers, spitting upon them, doing violence upon them. If they could have gotten their hands upon God, they would have killed him, having no idea that this patience was only meant to store up greater wrath for them. That in God's patience, in his delay in coming and wiping them from the face of the earth, this wasn't a tolerance. This was an opportunity for them to store up wrath for the day of judgment that was yet to come. And then the man's son. I know you're way ahead of me on this. You already know who the man's son is. It says his beloved son. We've heard this language before. At Jesus' baptism, we heard that voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You remember there on the Mount of Transfiguration as Peter and James and John went up there. Jesus pulled back the veil to his glory, revealed in the glory of God that was in him all along. And then there was a cloud that descended and then that booming voice that came forth that said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus was a prophet the ultimate prophet, but so much more. He was the beloved son, the precious son, the son in whom God delighted. So we must not allow this parable to confuse us, though, because there's some people that take, as the father says, I will send my son, and they will respect him. Or as it says in Luke's, perhaps they will respect my son. Some people take this to indicate that God thought that perhaps the world would receive his son, that while they had rejected all the prophets, that perhaps if God sent Jesus Christ, that the world would receive him. But friends, we know this isn't true. Running all throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus gives the very straightforward teaching. Remember, right after Peter confesses Jesus of the Christ, what, what does he say? He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the scribes, the elders, the chief priests. He must be killed, and then he must rise again. There was never any doubt how Jesus was going to be received by the people in Israel. There was never any doubt how the religious leaders would respond to him. God wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't surprised, and yet could he not say, they must respect my son? They've rejected the prophets. They have mistreated the prophets, and yet I will send my son. Surely they must respect my son, even while knowing exactly what was going to happen. And so as Jesus Christ comes, what do we hear the men cry out? Come, let us kill him. It reminds us of the words of Joseph's brothers. You remember as his father sends him out in the field to check on his Check on his older brothers, his older siblings. And as he's coming, what do they say? Here he comes. Come, let us kill him and throw him into a pit. There, there's something particularly loathsome about this kind of thing, isn't it? It's, it's one thing to plot evil in your own heart. It's another thing to carry out that evil, but to entice others to join you. Come, let us do this evil thing. We're going to see in the days to come is that's exactly what happens with these religious leaders is they're rallying the crowd into a frenzy. Come. 
Let us kill this one. They recognized exactly who he was, just like Joseph's brothers, just like the people, the tenants in the parables, these men, these religious leaders. And again, this wasn't from lack of knowledge. They knew this one who came, but he was an affront to their power. He was bringing destruction to their kingdom. He was bringing an assault on their reputation. And so they had determined that he must be destroyed. Again, this isn't an act of ignorance. This is an act of purposeful suppression of the truth. We read about that in Romans 1, that the unrighteousness of man is revealed, that the wrath of God is upon them because they suppress the truth, that which can be known about God. What this world needs is not a whole bunch of new thoughts. They need a new heart, a heart which receives the truth that has been revealed from God. And yet man in our sinful nature, we suppress that truth unless God does something, unless God does some supernatural work to bring us to the point that we no longer seek to suppress this. This is where their hearts were. They rejected the truth that had been revealed to them because they despised him, because they wanted so desperately to hold on to what they had built. And they kill the son, and they throw him out of the vineyard. This is perhaps a foreshadowing to Jesus' death and suffering outside the city gates. Horrendous act of absolute depravity, the murder of this man's son. Surely the people, they're listening on in horror to this story that Jesus tells, having no clue that it is playing out before their very eyes. But dear friends, I would tell you that even as you sit in this place right now and you nod your heads thinking about what a shame it was that those men from days of old crucified the son of the most high God, I need you to know that men continue to try and crucify him today. That there are churches all over this country that are gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ and yet by the refusal to worship the Jesus Christ of Scripture, the only son of God that has ever been, the only son of God that can truly save because there are church houses filled with men, not just pastors, but deacons and elders and teachers of all manner that seek to sit in places like this and to build a name for themselves, a reputation for themselves. And so they hold out before the people of Jesus Christ that makes them all real stinking comfortable. They hold up before these people through smiles and soft tones. They present to them a Jesus that never was, a powerless Jesus, a lifeless Jesus, a Jesus who cannot save, but hey, they fill the pews. But hey, they fatten the coffers. But hey, they built a reputation for themselves and they crucified Jesus every single time, holding him up as one to be despised. They said, we see you, Jesus Christ, son of the most high God, as you've been revealed in scripture, as the Holy Spirit gives testimony. We don't choose that Jesus. We choose the Jesus that we have made for ourselves. So they reject him in this very same way. So then Jesus goes on to ask them a question. Verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? The owner has been more than patient. He asks, what will the owner do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's obvious, isn't it? So in Matthew's parallel, it says that they responded. We don't know if they is the crowd. I like to believe that they is actually the Sanhedrin. That he asked to them, what will happen? And they said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. It feels to me an awful lot like David dealing with the prophet Nathan, doesn't it? Nathan comes to him to confront him because of his sin with Bathsheba, and he tells him a story, a parable about a man, a rich man, that's taken the lamb of a poor man and killed it and entertained friends with it. And David says, surely the man who has done this must die. Nathan looks the king dead in the eye, and he says, you are the man. I have to imagine in this moment as these scribes and these Sadducees and these elders, they say, the owner of this vineyard, he must come and put these wretches to death. They deserve a miserable death. And in this vineyard, it deserves to be given to another that Jesus just wanted to lean across and poke them in the chest and say, you are the tenants. You're the bad guys in this story. Don't you understand? We all have that tendency to hear these stories and to 
associate ourselves with whoever the hero is, right? Nobody reads about David and Goliath and sees themselves as the brothers cowering in the tent eating the bread that their little brother caught. Everybody believes they're David. Everybody believes that they're the hero in the story. And he's poking them square in their chest and saying, no, you're the bad guys, the worst of the bad guys. And you've now spoken. You've now confessed your own wretchedness, your own sin in acknowledging how often this, awful this is. And yet they would press on, so hardened by the sin in their hearts. Even as they understood, Jesus is speaking about us. Never once did they hit pause. Never once was there self-reflection. Never once was there thought that they themselves might have been deceived. They continued to press on. And in the end, they would find that God will come. There is an end to his patience. There is an appointed time when he's allowed the fullness of our sin and yet the fullness of the saints to come in. And in that day, he will come. His patience won't last forever. They'll be removed. They'll be replaced by another. And I have to imagine as he talks about this, this replacement by another, he's talking about, Paul calls it a great mystery. This reality that from all eternity, God's plan was the engrafting of the nations, the bringing in of the Gentiles, that any, any among national Israel and any from among all the nations, that Jesus is standing there in the court of Gentiles, the place where God has invited the outsiders to come and worship him, and he's standing there in this place confirming that, yes, my Father will welcome any who receive me as king into his kingdom. He's speaking to them about this, and then the new tenants that come in, these new men that are called to work the field, is this perhaps a picture of the apostles? Those who will be the true spiritual leaders of God's people? I don't know for sure, but it seems to be the picture that he's painting. Either way, the parable's concluded. The tenants are guilty. The owner of the vineyard is coming back to avenge them. The son has been killed and cast out of the vineyard. But Jesus continues because he never leaves the son dead. He never leaves the son cast out of the vineyard. He always carries us forward to the resurrection. Verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The, son, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he shifts, no longer talking about a vineyard. He's talking about a building now. Now it's interesting because this is actually a quote from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was a psalm that was quoted as Jesus was writing in for his triumphal entry. They shouted out from verse 26, that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now we find Jesus quoting from the 22nd and the 23rd verse. The 22nd verse went like that. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Just as with the vineyard parable, I don't think we have to be expert builders to understand what he's talking about here. There was a stone that was rejected. The builders looked at it and said, this is not suited for what we're doing. This isn't suited for what we're building. And so they cast it aside. But in the end, that stone shall be the cornerstone, the foundational stone. The stone that's at the very heart of everything that is built, the largest, the most precious, the most decorated of all the stones. It is from that stone that all the angles, that all the lines, that everything is set off of this stone. You get a bad cornerstone, and everything is going to be out of kilter. And yet these men, they've rejected this stone. Now, just as with the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, the people that are hearing Jesus say these words, the people that are reading Psalm 118, they assume that it's about them. Again, you always assume you're the good guy. And so they assume that what's happening here in Psalm 118 is that God is talking about the rejection of Israel by the nations and then his restoration of them and his plan for all the world. And yet what Jesus is saying here is that, no, this psalm, just like all of Scripture, it's about me. I am that stone that you have rejected because I wasn't what you wanted, because I wasn't what you were building. You see, if they've been building the house of God, and they've been doing that work of God, they would have recognized Jesus as the cornerstone. They would have said, this is the one that we set all our foundation upon, and yet, because he wasn't what they looked for, because they were building something else, they were building a house for themselves, they were building a kingdom for themselves, not only was he not suited to be the cornerstone, he had no place in the building at all. 
And so they throw him out. He says, I am that stone. And yet you must know that even as you throw me out, I will come back. I don't stay dead. I don't stay cast out of the vineyard. I come back and I find my place as the very cornerstone. This is the truth that he's preaching them in this day. I shall not stay there. You throw me away, but I keep coming back because I'm so very precious to my father. I'm the whole purpose to everything that's been building towards this point, that I am the cornerstone. And that you must know that it's my father that is the builder. He has entrusted this work to you, but you must know that ultimately it is my father who is the builder. And no matter how many times you try to cast me away as that unwanted stone, you must know that because my father builds, he will never lose. God never loses. Ever. Your rejection of his son, your disbelief in his son, your accusation that his son has no place in this kingdom, is of no effect. He always wins. And in this house that he is building, this spiritual house that he is building, his son is the cornerstone and there is no other. So he says, this stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He goes on in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 21, he goes on to tell them that the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's this old Jewish saying that there's a stone, and you drop the pot on the stone, and the pot breaks. You drop the stone on the pot, and the pot breaks. Jesus Christ, those that will not receive him, those who will either come against him or those who will allow him to come against them in the final day. Either way, they shall find themselves crushed. You don't stop the work of God by rejecting Jesus Christ. You don't stop the work of God by bringing violence against Jesus Christ. Nothing you do can stop the work of God in building his house. And now this thought, it runs all throughout the New Testament. This idea of Jesus is the cornerstone. We read it all throughout the New Testament. And where do we get most of what we get from Mark? We're told that John Mark that much of what he gives to us was the first-hand account of the Apostle Peter. So we shouldn't be surprised then that as we look back over the ministry of Peter, we see him using this very same kind of language. As he stood there and he hears Jesus talk about himself as the rejected stone that becomes the cornerstone, we shouldn't be surprised that we see it in one of his very first confrontations with these very same men. I refer back to Acts 4. This is a familiar story to you because I refer to it a lot these days. But you remember that Peter and John, they're there by the gate called Beautiful. They healed the line be- the lame beggar they're called in before these very same men before this council and they're asked a very similar question to the one that they asked of jesus by what power do you do this they didn't ask authority exousia like they asked with jesus they asked what power dynamis like dynamite is the word but what power do you do these things so peter filled with the holy spirit he speaks to them let it be known to you all and to all the people of israel that by the name of jesus christ of nazareth the one whom you have crucified whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved. He's standing before them right now, and you know what he's saying? He told you so. He warned you that this was going to happen. You crucified him. His father didn't leave him dead. He was risen from the dead. You said that you could cast him away. He told you, you throw me away like an unwanted stone. I shall come back as the cornerstone. And I stand before you today as a big I told you so. Why is this man standing? Because Jesus told you so. Why has this man been healed? By what power? The same power, the one that you threw out the first time. 
Just as he told you it happened, he is the cornerstone. He is the basis for everything that God is building. All the promises that he's brought against you, the curses that he's brought against you, the meaningless of whatever this kingdom is that you're bringing, it's coming to pass. And you're seeing evidence of it right now. You wonder why God continued to do these miracles through the, uh, through the apostles? For this, to give evidence that Jesus was who he says he was. The spirit had come upon these men as he said it was, and that God was building the house exactly as he said he would. Now just a few years before Peter's death. So you're talking about now some three decades after this point. Jesus, uh, Peter is writing. He's, he's writing his first letter. And he quotes, at this time he's quoting out of, out of, out of Isaiah, Isaiah 26. But it's got the very same idea. He's talking to the church and they've got some things really twisted up with regards. They're trying to build another house. They're trying to build another house. Other than the house that is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so he's confronting them in this. He's calling them the personal holiness. And in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6, we read this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You've got to see this flow here, friends. As Peter stands there and he hears Jesus saying, you will cast me out, but I am the cornerstone. All that my father is building, it begins and it is set on me. And then he stands there before those very same men. And he says, you wonder how I work? I work in the name of the one that you have rejected. He's still the cornerstone, despite your continued rejection, despite all the violence that you bring against me. And then he stands there near the end of his life and he says, guys, it's still the same. I've not been put to shame. Despite the violence, despite the imprisonment, despite the death that is sure to come, he has never once put me to shame because he is the cornerstone. And it doesn't matter what opposition he gets. It doesn't matter what opposition we get. This is all happening exactly as God has told you. It's all happening exactly as God has planned. Because we go back to this morning's text, what do we find? Verse 10, have you not read in Scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 11, this was the Lord's doing. Underline that. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Time is short, but I, I can't pass this over. What is the Lord's doing? All of it. All of it. Not just the taking of the castaway stone and restoring it as the cornerstone. All of it. God was sovereign over every last thing that was happening. He was in charge of it all. Not only was the father not caught off guard by what happened to his son, this was his plan for the salvation of the world. What you find as you go forward, keep your finger there and go right back to where we just were in Acts 4. You remember this because I refer to this prayer almost every single week. After the confrontation that Peter and John have had with the council, they come back and they report to the people what's happened. And they begin praying to God. And what do they say in the middle of that prayer? God, we know that gathered here in Jerusalem, both Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jewish leaders, they have all done exactly as you predestined by your hand and by your plan. The Lord has done it all. Everything that God had predestined by his hand and by his plan, even in the most vicious sin that ever happened in the history of the world, the death of his son, it was all happening according to God's absolute perfect providence. Go right back to the, Peter, uh, to the Peter's letter, 1 Peter 2.7. You see this theme running all throughout his ministry. 1 Peter 2.7, he says, the stone is a stumbling and a rock of offense. To those that come to Jesus Christ and they don't see him as precious, they don't see him as a thing to be cherished. They don't want to build the house that he is building. He's a stumbling stone, 
a stone that they fall upon and are crushed, or a stone that falls upon them and they are crushed. But he goes on to say, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You getting a theme here? They were destined to stumble, predestined to stumble. This was God's plan all along. These men would stumble. They would reject Jesus Christ, that they would cast him out of the vineyard, and yet that he would set him up as the cornerstone for the salvation of the world. Now, you're tired of me talking about God's sovereignty, I know. But dear friends, you've got to understand, this isn't just some type of intellectual exercise. This isn't just some type of theological mishmash that I'm trying to bring before you. You've got to understand the importance of this. Because this is a theme that Paul talks about all throughout his writings as well. Paul talks about Jesus as the cornerstone. And it's because of that that Paul could stand there in Romans and say, because we know that God did not spare his own son, will he not freely give us all, all, that Jesus Christ that he came not of some happenstance. He didn't come with the, with the expectation that the world was going to receive him and place him on some earthly throne. He didn't come expecting that the Jewish establishment was going to shout, hooray, finally the Messiah has come. He came knowing that these men would reject him as they were destined to do, according to God's providence, his plan, and his hand. Knowing that God had done all that for the sake of the salvation of the world. And if God would do that, if God would sacrifice his son in that way, if God would not withhold his son in that way, will he not freely give us all things? As we face the troubles of this world, as you face the bad news of this world, as you are faced the rejection of this world, as you face the difficult circumstances of this world, can you not look to the God above who has sacrificed his son, sent forth his son, not withheld his son in this way and say, God, surely you have given me all things. That's why this matters. God wasn't just making lemonade out of lemons. God wasn't just responding in real time to a really crummy situation. As magnificent as that would have been, he was ordaining it all for the sake that you would sit here today and be saved to his glory. That you could endure all things knowing that it is to your good and to his glory. That's the message. That's why over and over again what we see when we're, to, when we're told about the rejection of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, immediately it's followed up with, and God has said it will be so. So that there's never any room for anyone to think that somehow man can circumvent God's sovereignty by their sin. Do you understand this? Every man serves the purposes of God. You serve them like Judas or you serve them like John the Baptist, but every man serves the purposes of God. You will either stand upon this stone and find salvation, you will either find him as a rock of refuge, or you will be crushed by him. But either way, you serve the purposes of God. Don't think for one minute that you can hold your breath long enough in your sin and say, well, God, I'm outside of your sovereignty because I refuse to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. No one escapes the hand of God. And then he goes on, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. It's like they got the shortest memory ever. He just said, here's what's going to happen. The sun's going to come. You're going to see the sun coming as the heir of all things. You're going to say, come, let us grab him and kill him. And they immediately respond by going, oh, I hate this dude. Come, let's grab him and kill him. But being the cowards that they were, they they went away and waited for another time because they were afraid of the crowds. This is the nature of men that build kingdoms for themselves. They're so worried about the opinions of men. They're so worried about popular consensus on a matter. They couldn't even act in accordance with what their heart most desperately desired. They're going to wait for the darkness of night, not knowing, by the way, had they acted at this point, 
it would not have been what God had predestined to happen. It was at the appointed time that they would arrest him, at the appointed time that they would take his life, at the appointed time that he would rise again. They were all, even in this, even in their cowardice, even in their sin, even in their rejection, acting in absolute lockstep with God's predestined plan. Dear friends, I do hope you take great comfort in that. Because you don't know what's going to happen when you walk outside of this door today. You don't know what evil might befall you. You don't know what evil you might commit. You have no clue what the next hour, what the next month, what the next year looks like. But you have a God above that is sovereign over all of it. And all creation is moving in accordance with his providential plan, even in the rejection of his son. And if he would not withhold his son, will he not freely give you all things? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the reality of the gospel. The assurance, Father, that Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, that that was not plan B. That was not some on-the-fly reaction. But that, Father, from the very beginning, when you when you determined according to your eternal counsel that you would, you would create a race called humanity, that we would rebel against you and that you would extend salvation, that you had determined that Jesus Christ would be that only way of salvation. His coming to take the sins of the world upon himself, to die an atoning death and to raise again to prove absolute victory. We thank you, Father. We thank you that you have not withheld even from us the most precious of all things, and that being your son, in his glorious life. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to live in light of that, help us to live lives of absolute assurance, that because we have been bought at a great price, because that price was not snatched from your hand but freely given, that we are, in fact, precious to you and that you will not let a one of us slip from your hands. Help us to live with the courage that that ought to instill and help us from that place to spring forth into true spiritual worship. And it's our desire now that you would be glorified by our worship. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen.